Okay, if you have Bibles with you, please open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Today's my fifth message uh, in a new series titled Love. And I've been going through the word and looking at some of the more striking, the more impactful, um, uh, the more um, powerful verses uh, concerning the topic of love. And so far, we've looked at some just amazing verses of scripture on the topic. Two by Jesus and two by the Apostle Paul. We looked at Mark 12, verses 30 and 31, which says, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There's no commandment greater than these. And the second one by Jesus that we looked at is John 13, 34 and 35, when with his disciples he, he issued a new commandment. He established a new covenant with his people. And he said, a new command I give you. Love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. Everyone will know you are my disciples if you love one another. Can you see how those two verses will preach? Man, you could just spend a whole lot of time on those two verses. Powerful stuff. And then we looked at two verses by Paul. We looked at Ephesians 3, verses 16 and 19, which is Paul's prayer for the church at Ephesus. And he prays this. He says that, I pray out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I, and I pray that you being rooted and established in love. I want to be rooted and established in love. How about you? Right? That'd be nice on my tombstone. Tom Zawacki, he was rooted and established in love. That would be good. I would like that. I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I'm not there yet. I'm not filled to all the measure of the fullness of God. I think I still have some more praying I could do on these verses out of Ephesians chapter 3. And then last week we looked at some powerful verses about how, how absolutely inseparable is God's love. From Romans 8 verses 35 and 39, it says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or the sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither life nor death, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, or any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Could he qualify how inseparable God's love is from us any more than he did in those verses? There's no, I can't find a loophole that says, yes, this is true for everybody but Tom Zawacki, and he could separate his love from me. His love is inseparable. We have an amazing God who loves at a capacity that we cannot fathom. He's big God. He loves us lavishly and extravagantly. So today I want to I continue in the series on love. And, um, and we're going to take a look at 1 Corinthians 13. 
I don't know of anybody, Christian or not Christian, whose love tank is filled to overflowing. Every person I've ever met could use to be loved more. Every person I've ever met, every Christian I've ever met, needs to know with a greater degree of certainty just how great God's love is for them. I've never met anyone who's completely convinced of it. I've read some authors who seem to grasp it at a level, level greater than I do, but I've never pastored anyone who is so absolutely certain of God's love for them that they could not benefit from hearing another message about it. So why am I doing this? Because you need to know. You absolutely need to know just how great our God is, just what a good heavenly Father we have, and just how incredible and extraordinary is His amazing love. So today we're going we're gonna to take a look at the classic biblical chapter on love. Aside from 1 John 4, 8, which simply says God is love, this is the most comprehensive explanation of love that we have in Scripture. And so today I want to take a look at verses 1 through 3, and I'll cover the rest of the chapter in, over the next couple of weeks. So you can follow along in the screen, or if you're one of the um, you know, old-timers who still have a Bible in your hands, I will begin reading in verse 1. That wasn't personal, Tom. I'm sorry, buddy. No. The 84 version was better. The 84 version was better. Verse 1 says, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Lord, I thank you for the truth and the power that's in your word. I pray, Lord, that you'd use me today to speak your word to your people in a way that's life-giving. Amen? So let me offer a little bit of context for you. As I go through scripture and I'm kind of cherry-picking some of the best verses I can find on love, I like to offer some of the context for a greater degree of understanding. I think there's some integrity in teaching when we do that. And so 1 Corinthians, this is the Apostle Paul's first epistle, or his first letter to the church of Corinth. His overriding theme throughout the letter is, um, I, I guess I'd put it this way, Christian, a Christian lifestyle in a pagan society. That might be a good way of defining the theme of the letter. Actually, a rather fitting theme for most of North America today, wouldn't we say? Some historical background, Corinth, the city, was large, it was busy, it was a wealthy city. Um, because of its location and because of the resources it had there, people from all around the world would flow in and out of its ports. It, it kind of reminds me of a, of a common day New York City. You know, it, was a, it was a party town, town, city that never sleeps, you know, a lot of, a lot of uh, goods uh, traded, a lot of people traveling in and out of the Corinth. It was a center for art and philosophy and for religion, and uh, it even had uh, a number of pagan temples. Included, they included two large temples, actually, to Apollos and Aphrodite. 
so the city, much like my hometown, New York City, had a reputation for vice and immorality. It's probably one of the few places we can appropriately use the term debauchery, might be a good way of describing uh, Corinth. It was a party town, absolutely. See, Paul had spent 18 months in Corinth planting a church. He established a church in Corinth during his second missionary journey. You can read about that in Acts chapter 18. And uh, this letter that he wrote to them was written about three or four years later. See, they had written to Paul with some concerns. Some problems had arisen a few years after he'd left from planting the church. And so they wrote to him about some concerns, some issues, some trouble going on in the church. And this letter is Paul's response to their letter. He's writing back to them. But So we only get half the correspondence. We don't necessarily get to see specifically what they wrote about, but we can, we can kind of decipher some of it based upon uh, what Paul wrote to them. So this great chapter on love, 1 Corinthians 13, it's obviously found between chapters 12 and 14. In 1 Corinthians, that's where you find 13, right? Um, chapter 12 is all about the gifts of the Holy Spirit entirely. It's about how we're one body with many parts and how we have unity amongst our diversity of gifts and how the parts of the body represent uh, the gifts of the Spirit. And the gifts listed in 1 Corinthians 12 are this, wisdom, knowledge, faith, healing, miracles, prophecy, discernment, the gift of tongues, the, the gift of interpretation of tongues. Uh, that's in verses 7 to 10. And then in verses 28 to 30, he lists other gifts as apostles, prophets, teachers, miracles, healing, helps, guidance, and tongues again uh, in those verses 28 to 30. So chapter 12, all about the gifts of the Spirit. If you skip 13 and go over the, to chapter 14, again it picks up the theme about the gifts of the Spirit. And so in chapter 14 he's speaking about prophetic gifts and about the gift of tongues. The, the whole first half of the chapter covers those two gifts. And then the, the rest of the chapter, it, it uh, provides practical instruction on how these gifts are the function in a corporate setting, kind of like what we have today. That's the whole second half of chapter 14. Now between these two chapters that are, that are speaking about the, how the gifts of the Holy Spirit function in a church body, between these two amazing chapters on the gifts, Paul inserts and he writes concerning love right in the midst of it. How appropriate, from my perspective, is it that love is at the very center of the gifts of the Spirit? It's centered between the gifts. One of, it's one of the most widely used and recognized of all biblical chapters. Why? Because a lot of people use it at their wedding. It's a, I've done some weddings where those, often where those verses are used. And so people are familiar with it. I don't know that people are necessarily familiar about what was going on in Corinth and concerning the gifts of the Spirit and why Paul's writing about love, but it's powerful nonetheless. And, and chapter 13 begins by putting love in the proper context when it, concerning the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at those first three verses that I read. We'll look at the first two. It's speaking here about the supremacy of love. In verses 1 and 2, Paul communicates clearly that love is superior to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. That love is absolutely superior to the Holy Spirit. Now, if you've listened to me at all, 
you know that I believe this. I mean, I, I fully, wholeheartedly embrace the operation of the gifts of the Holy Spirit today and in the local church. But if you've listened to me at all, you know that I value love over the gifts. And part of the reason why I hold that strong conviction are these very verses. Let me read one and two to you again. Paul writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy, can you understand why that would resonate in my heart as one of the one of the areas where God has gifted me. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. Wow, powerful statement. So let me, let me just give a word here about the gift of tongues. The church at Corinth was enamored with spiritual gifts, particularly the gift of tongues. Now I can remember early in my Christian days where the gift of tongues was a pretty big deal. It seemed to just really be a hot topic uh, back in the, in the late 70s when I first came to Christ. It seems, you know, you know, almost 40 years later, it's not nearly as hot a topic as it was back then. But boy, I got to tell you, whether or not you spoke in tongues, it was, it was pretty intense. As a young Christian, I would listen to, I'd listen to Christian radio all day long. I mean, I, I would put it on at work, and, and this is back in... Back in Brooklyn, they'd have these 15-minute programs because that's all, the, that's all the guy could afford, right? And he'd spend about seven of those 15 minutes asking for money so that he could afford to pay for the next 15. Anyway, <laughs> you had these programs that go every 15 minutes, every 30 minutes, and the guys, that were, you know, they were really you know, popular. They were well-known. Their program would go for an hour. Well, I'd listen all day long, and the first guy would say, if you don't speak in tongues, and you're not saved. You, you, to be saved, you've got to speak in tongues. And then the next guy would say, if you speak in tongues, you're demonized. And the next guy after that would say, well, you've got to speak in tongues. We say, oh, we're so confusing. Everybody was all excited about the gifts of tongues. It was the evidence of salvation. Oh, no, no, it was evidence of demons. It was a hot topic. It seemed like it was a pretty hot topic back in, in current as well. Not so much today. I think it's a good thing. It's not such a big deal today. Um, but Paul... Paul reminds them here in the first couple of verses that even tongues is meaningless without love. That without love, a person may speak with the gift of tongues, but it's as meaningless as an alarm. It's as, as, me, as meaningless as your alarm clock. It's as meaningless as a beeping horn on a truck. It's nothing but empty noise. Matter of fact, it could even be an irritant without love. Now the term here, the, 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 the term the tongues of men and angels, the Greek word translated here for tongues is glossa, G-L-O-S-S-A. And it's sometimes translated language in other parts of Scripture. If you go to, to Acts 2.11, it's tongues. If you go to Revelation 5.9, the same Greek word used, but they interpret it as language. Now, this has led some biblical scholars, commentators, to say that the gift of tongues is simply the ability to communicate the gospel in a human language. That's how some people have interpreted the concept of the gift of tongues, that you can communicate the gospel in some other human language. Or that it, it, it's referring to a person's capability of learning languages quickly. But... I think it's hard to come to that conclusion 
concerning this Greek word when you see the context of how it's used in, in 1 Corinthians 13. How it's used right here, also how it's used in chapters 12 and 14 of 1 Corinthians. It, it shows that, it, that the word glossa, glossa, can refer to, and usually does refer to, a supernatural language. A language the believer uses to communicate with God. And frankly, when you put it in the context of tongues of men and angels, there's really no other way to interpret this or to understand it other than a supernatural language. If you could speak in the language of angels, that's not a natural capability, that's a supernatural capability, right? So why does this happen? Why does the word of God get twisted like this? Why do some people try to, to shove square pegs in round holes? Why do they do this with terms like tongues? And why do they de-spiritualize it? Well, some biblical scholars, they like to downplay the supernatural. Frankly, there are some people who have issues when it comes to the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They try to squeeze the word of God into their mold, into their agenda, into their into their bias. And they're, honestly, they're often they're more content and frankly more comfortable with information and they usually find experience to be somewhat suspect. So take note. Apparently, according to these verses, wouldn't this, wouldn't this be interesting? That indeed, there are angelic languages and that men can speak them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Wouldn't that be fun? I, I haven't had that one. I think that would be a cool gift to have. Not that they would speak in my language in a way I understand them, but what if I spoke in their language in the way that they understand me? I don't know. It sounds like fun. I'd like to try that one. It's in the book. I didn't make it up. All right, moving on from tongues. Paul makes it clear that not just tongues, but prophecy, the ability to understand all mysteries, possessing all knowledge, and even mountain-moving faith, miracles, they're irrelevant apart from love. Paul says that if he had all these gifts, but he lacked love, then he's nothing. See, the Corinthian church, the Corinthian Christians were missing the driving motivation and the main objective behind the use of the gifts. They were making the gifts of the Spirit an end in and of themselves. And Paul correctly draws their attention back to love. Boy, I, I just want to cheer. There's something in me that just wants to stand up and, and shout, yes, I agree, amen, right, Paul, this is the right thing, this is good. You know, concerning mountain-moving faith, Paul seems to be drawing upon the words of Jesus from Matthew 17, 20, where Jesus says, truly, I tell you, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. Nothing will be impossible for you. Wouldn't it be amazing? To have that kind of faith, to have mountain-moving faith, to have faith of the impossible. But even that faith, void of love, Paul tells us is nothing. Bible commentator David Guzik adds this, he says, A man with faith can move great mountains, but he will, set, he will still set them down in the path of somebody else or right on somebody else if he doesn't have love. Right? It's not enough. It's not enough to speak the word of God unless you have the heart of God 
You need to have both. You could do the works of God with the heart of man and make a big mess. Anybody ever seen that happen? I've seen that happen. You've got to have love. Now bear in mind, because some have foolishly made this mistake, that this is not an argument. Paul's not making an argument for love versus the gifts. He's not saying make a choice of love or gifts. He's saying embrace the gifts. Chapters 12 and 14 are all about the gifts of the Spirit. He's putting, he's putting love, chapter 13, right at the center of it. He's not saying choose between love and the gifts. He's saying operate in the gifts of the Spirit. Fathom all mysteries. Prophesy. Speak in tongues, but do it. Do it all in the context of love. Many churches foolishly today have come to the conclusion that it's, it's either or. It's this or that. They present it as love versus the gifts. Usually you hear it this way. This is usually the language that they use. They want the fruit of the Spirit, not the gifts of the Spirit. That's usually how it's couched, because it sounds better. But why do we have to choose? I don't see anything in Scripture that we, says we have to choose the fruit over the gifts. I want both. I want truckloads of the fruit, and I want to live a supernatural life in the power of the Holy Spirit. Why should we be content to settle for anything less than that? I don't know. Let's love well. Let's love extraordinarily well and live supernatural lives in the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's be a people who exhibit the fruit of the Spirit as we operate in the gifts of the Spirit. I think we could do that. I think that's on the table. I think that's a viable option. A church, a church should never, a church should never be forced, a church should never be forced to choose between love and the gifts of the Holy Spirit. God isn't forcing that choice on us. And churches ought not force that choice on their people. Paul is emphasizing the focus and the goal of the gifts, which is love. This is not an either-or situation. I believe that the church desperately needs today both the gifts and love. And my personal passion, the passion of my heart, is to train and equip people who can use their God-given gifts and use them in the most loving ways possible. Now Paul ends verse 2 with, um, but do not have love, I am nothing. Now Paul's using the Greek word agape for love here. Most of you have heard of agape before. In that time, in that culture, the, the ancient Greeks had four different words that they translated love. And I thought it might be important for us to understand the difference between those words and why Paul, why the Apostle Paul might be choosing this particular word for love over the others. The first two words, ancient Greek words, are not found in Scripture, the second two are. But I thought I'd bring all four of them to your attention. The first ancient Greek word for love is eros, and it describes what we my guess from the word itself is erotic love. It's, it's love that refers to uh, sexual love. The second word is storge, and it refer, refers to the love that one would find in their family. It's, it's the kind of love between a parent and a child, or between family members in general. The third type of love is philia love. And there are 12 different variations of this word love, in the New Testament, but it speaks about brotherly love or a fraternal affection. It's a, a love of deep friendship, of deep partnership. 
It's a love that you might have with your closest friend or your oldest friend, your dearest friend. It might be described as the highest level of love that man can attain without God's help. It's the highest love that we're capable of without God's impact in our lives. But the fourth word, ancient Greek word for love, and the one that Paul chooses to use here is agape. And the New Testament has three different versions of it. But it basically means this. It's a love that loves without changing. It's a self-giving love without demanding or expecting repayment. It's a no-strings-attached love. It's a love so great that it can be given to the most unlovable or the most unappealing person. It's a love that loves even when it's been rejected. Wow, that's a powerful love. You've been rejected or betrayed. To choose to love under those circumstances, that's, that's not human. That's... That's divine. Agape love gives and loves because it wants to. It does not demand or expect repayment for the love given. It gives because it loves. It doesn't love in order to receive. Truly, agape is an unconditional love. It's a love without conditions. It's a love that chooses to love without conditions upon the recipient of that love. According to the well-known British evangelist, pastor, and author, Alan Redpath, uh, we get the English word agony from agape. He says it, agape, means the actual absorption of our being in one great passion. It means the actual absorption of our being in one great passion. Agape can be defined as a sacrificial love, as a giving love, as an absorbing love. The word has little to do with emotion, but it has much to do with self-denial for the sake of another. You've you've heard me say this before, love is self-limiting for the sake of another. That's agape love. When we choose to limit ourselves for the sake of a person, in order to love another person, that's agape love. That's, that's the type of love we find most common when, when we engage with children. Have you ever, I've used this example before. Have you ever played tic-tac-toe with a five-year-old? You could crush them every game, right? But you let them win. Why? You're self-limiting for the sake of another. Um, moms know this all the time. They know what it's like to sacrifice for their children. Right? This is agape-type love. Now, some might read this chapter and think that Paul is saying that if we're unkind or if we're unfriendly, then our lives mean nothing. But that's, that would not be accurate because agape isn't simply kindness or friendliness. Agape love means self-denial for the sake of another. So that's why Paul chose that word. If we, if we lack the love of God... We can do the things of God, and it's meaningless. Do you get that? That's why he chose that word agape. If we lack the love of God, we can even use the gifts of God, and they're meaningless. We've got to have his love. 
It's not enough to have his gifts. So verse 3, he goes on and, and continues to expound on this. He says that even the most dramatic acts of self-sacrifice are worthless without love. Verse 3 says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. So you know, Paul's up in the ante here. He's saying you know, that even if I give my body over to hardship, other translations say to be burned. If I, if I give up my life to be martyred, and I do it without love, it's worthless. It's powerful. Apart from love, there's no profit in it whatsoever. Now, normally, no one would doubt the spiritual potentials of somebody who, um, you know, who willingly gave up everything they had or gave up their lives for, for martyrdom. But Paul's saying here that that type of sacrifice, be it of possessions or even your own life, he's saying that's not the true measure of someone's spiritual credentials. I mean, I would personally find it impressive. However, he's saying that there's a higher measure yet. And that measures love. We can do right things wrong. Anybody ever done that? You ever did the right thing for the wrong reason? It's not enough. We have to be people who do right things right. He's saying that the highest spiritual credential isn't giving up all our stuff or, or laying down our life. He's saying that the highest spiritual credential is this. It's love. To do those things, but to do them out of love. Not to do those things void of love. Sometimes people do great acts, not motivated by love, but motivated by guilt, or motivated by shame, or because they've been manipulated, or they're being controlled. It's not the same thing as doing great acts of sacrifice motivated by love. Paul's telling us here that love is the highest and best of all measures. I've said this many times before. It's more important to love than it is to be right. That if being right comes at the expense of love, my opinion is that the price is too high. I'd rather be, I would rather be seen as wrong and loving than to be seen as right and unloving. Wouldn't you? Now, other, other Christians think that this life, this spiritual life that we have following Christ is all about suffering. And throughout the ages, there are some who thought it was the most important aspect of the Christian life. And at times, it's been a, it's been a significant element of our spiritual journeys, of mine, of yours, I'm sure. But Scripture makes it clear here that even suffering, even great suffering done Without love, it profits us nothing. Guys, we've got to get the love thing right. We have got to get the love thing right. Even done willingly. Great sacrifice, great suffering, even done willingly. Without love, it profits us nothing. Some think it's about suffering, some think it's about sacrifice, sacrificing your money or your time or your energy or your life for the cause of Christ. And just like suffering, sometimes sacrifice is required on our spiritual journeys. 
But Paul is telling us in no uncertain terms that even that, without love, that it's useless and profits us nothing. Even great sacrifice done without love gains us nothing. Now bear in mind that all the things that Paul's referencing here in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13, these are all good things. Tongues are a good thing. The gift of tongues. Prophetic gifts, a very good thing. Knowledge, it's a good thing. Faith, of course faith is a good thing. Mountain moving faith, that's a good thing. Sacrifice is good. But love is so valuable. It's so significantly more valuable than these other things listed that apart from love, <coughs> every other good thing is useless. So I think one of the arguments that Paul's making here is that sometimes we let go of the best for good. And then in that process, good becomes enemy of best. And it's so prevalent in the church. The issues of faith and belief become so passionately and, and so intensely part of who we are and how we identify ourselves that when another brother or sister comes along and somehow their beliefs or their values rub up against ours, love seems to get thrown overboard instantly. It ought not be. It ought not be. We ought not hold on to our dogma, our theology, our philosophy, our preferences, our ideology. We ought not hold on to those things more tightly than we hold on to love for God and love for one another. Doesn't that make sense? Is, is there anybody in this room that was never part of a church split? <laughs> I mean, it is so common nowadays for churches to split over the most ridiculous things. Love becomes a casualty. One, one group thinks the, per, the church should be painted blue and somebody else says, no, it should be a light green. And so they split the church over it. I'm not making that up. I was part of a church that did that. And I'm looking at these guys, thinking, I was a kid, I'm thinking, you're supposed to be grown-ups. Are you kidding me? A church split over the color of paint. Is our love so shallow? Is our love so weak that even the opinion of paint can split our ranks? Nothing should be stronger than the love that we have for one another. We should be bound together in love. By the love of God, by the agape love, by the unconditional love. I think, I believe, I'm convinced that there would be less church splits if we knew how to love one another better. I'm convinced that all men would know that we are Jesus' disciples, that we follow the Lord Jesus Christ if we could love one another more effectively. If love wasn't the first casualty every time somebody disagreed. Isn't that right? I'm not making this up. This isn't just my idea. It's just common sense. Man, I don't even think you have to be spiritual to realize this. But because I might define the word of God differently than you do, then it's okay for you to not love me? Or it's okay for me to not love you? Isn't that foolishness? Aren't we straining out gnats and swallowing camels when we do that? Aren't we better than that? Aren't we smarter than that? Haven't we been doing this stuff long enough that by now, at this part on our journey, we could get the love part right? I think we are. I challenge you. I challenge you. 
Go for love. Let nothing get in the way of love. Not your opinion, not your history, not your training, not your theology, not your preferences, not your opinion. Let nothing make love a sacrifice. Not prophecy, not dreams, not visions, not gifts, nothing. Choose love. Because we could do all those other things and do them with excellence. We get a perfect theology. We could prophesy without error. We can interpret every dream accurately. We could speak in tongues and interpret it. We could do it while we're spinning on our head. But if we do it without love, the word says that it's of no value to us, that we're in nothing. Let, I want to get the love part right and do all those other things with excellence. That's what I want to do. I don't know why we should settle for anything less than that. Now these verses, they hold personal, great personal significance to me. My, my gift mix, the way God's made me who I am, at this point in my journey, there's a variety of gifts and talents I guess working in there, but the primary gift mix is pastoral and prophetic. These are the two ways that he uses me. And so because of that, these verses speak profoundly to me. The pastoral side of me is so inspired by the emphasis on love. It just resonates with my heart. But I also value all the gifts that he's listed there, specifically prophetic gifts. So it just, it, it strikes my heart. Now over the years, I've known some amazingly gifted and talented, extraordinarily gifted prophetic people. They could hear like nobody else could hear. They were terrible at love. They were angry. They were mean. They would uncover people. They would do, they would use their gift and do it in a wrong way. I call it the days of the angry prophets. Man, I want those days to be over. And I think that they are. I think God's doing a new thing. It was just a few months ago, I woke up, it was one Sunday morning, and God says to me, I mean, as soon as I opened my eyes, this is what I heard. You know, that's still small voice. Not, it wasn't like an angel was standing at the foot of my bed, or, you know, or God had a megaphone in my ear. I just woke up, and I call that twilight time, half awake, half asleep, and God says, see, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs up. Can you not perceive it? Right? That's from Scripture. Isaiah 48, 19, close to that. I remember sitting up in bed thinking, and he says, can you not perceive it? I'm thinking, nope, I can't perceive it. <laughs> Honestly, Lord, I need a little more help. <laughs> Enough gifting to hear him, but I don't understand. But I think it might have something to do with this. I'm thinking that the day of the angry prophets is over. I think it's a new spiritual season. I think it's a new season defined by mercy and not judgment. In the last season, judgment ruled the day. Right ruled over love. And people went to war. Christians went to war over one another. And judgment was the, was the missiles that they launched at each other. I think that the days of judgment are over and that the days of mercy are at hand. Oh God, let it be so. Mercy triumphs over judgment. I read that in a good book. I think it's a spiritual season. A new spiritual season defined by the love of God. Defined by his love, by his mercy, by his grace, by freedom, by passion. 
And I'm acutely aware that the former season, it's still got some momentum behind it. You ever roll a rock down a hill? It doesn't just kind of stop in the middle of the hill. Matter of fact, you can roll all the way down the hill and go up the next hill and still have enough energy to come back down again. So I think we're entering into a new season, but make no mistake, the former season of judgment, the former season that values a performance-based Christianity, I think there's still got some life in it. We've still got to slay that dragon. It's not dead yet. Any Monty Python fans? Not dead yet. <laughs> Bring out your dead. <laughs> I'm not dead yet. I think the former season, not dead yet. Only a few Monty Python fans in here today. <laughs> I want to see a marriage of the prophetic and the pastoral. I want to see a release of people who can not only proclaim the word of God in power and authority, but who will do it with the heart of God. Who'll speak his word with his heart. Who'll, who'll communicate his message with his love. Doesn't that sound right? That resonates within me. I'm thinking that's what he wants for this hour. And, and it's for this reason. I want to read to you now what I think are the scariest verses in all of Scripture. The ones that strike fear in my heart. From Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 to 23. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Verse 22 is the one that strikes fear in my heart. He says, Many will say to me on that day, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Whoa. I got to tell you, if you're charismatic or Pentecostal, if that's your spiritual background, is that, if that's how you identify yourself today, this ought to have you absolutely shaking in your boots. Because I've done all those things. Cast out demons. I prophesied. I prayed for people and even seen a couple of them healed. Some people might define it as miraculous. And Jesus could say to people who function and operate in those gifts, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers? Wait a minute. I need an explanation. What's going on here? I think what Jesus is saying here is exactly what Paul's saying in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. He's saying that you can do good without God. That you can do very good without God. We have a God who liberally gives out his gifts. And he gives them, and scripture tells them he never takes them back. He gives them without repentance. He, the word tells us that he gives them and they're irrevocable. He doesn't give a gift to you and then snatch it back. He gives it to you with yours. That's why we could see some people with great gifts do horrific things. I don't want to be numbered among the people listed here in Matthew 7. How about you? I don't want to be the person that Paul, the people that Paul's referring to in the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 13. Instead, I want to know God. I want to be known by God. What's the key to these verses in Matthew 7? He says, I never knew you. 
And I've talked about this so many times, but the word there, gnosko, means a deep, intimate, personal, experiential knowing. Jesus said we never had relationship. He's saying we were never friends. We were never intimate. And, it's, and the word is speaking about a profoundly deep level of intimacy. He says, I never knew you. We don't know each other. You do stuff in my name, but you don't know me. I don't know you. I want to know him. I want to love him. I want to experience his love for me. I want gnosko. I want that intimate level of knowing. And I want everything that I do for him, even if it includes prophecy or casting out demons or healing the sick to be done out of the motivation, out of the fruit of the loving intimacy that we share with one another. That'll keep me out of the category of Matthew chapter 20. Of Matthew 7, verse 22. Jesus came for intimacy. He came for intimacy with you and me. He didn't come to provide a new philosophy or a moral way of living or a new spiritual paradigm. He came for relationship. 1 John 4, 19 says that we love because he first loved us. He came to love us. He came to pour out his love in our lives. And out of him loving us, we're empowered, we're made capable. It's our response to his love that we love. And that loving relationship, that loving interaction, the fruit of that loving interaction, that loving intimacy, that's where the new paradigms come from. New paradigms are the fruit of intimacy. So I'm getting to the end here now. Every once in a while, as a pastor, I have a young person come to me, and they feel like they're called to the ministry. They're, they're inspired. They think that, like I felt like when I was 18, that God had called me to be a pastor. I meet somebody, and they... And they have these same desires. I've had opportunity over the years to speak to, to groups of interns who, who are in some ministries training program for, for work of ministry later on. And I, and I want to tell them this. And I do tell them this. And I want to tell you today. That ministry is not the high watermark of Christianity. That being a pastor, being a... <laughs> The term used to go around all the time, full-time ministry. Being in full-time ministry, it's not the high watermark of Christianity. You see, there's a bride and there's a bridegroom. And between them is a passionate love affair. And I've seen all too often where people's desire for ministry becomes the mistress in the relationship. I've seen ministry become a mistress. I have. It becomes a distraction from, from our first love. We want to do the stuff of God without love. I think that's how we wind up with the Matthew 7 people. Ministry became their mistress, and they forgot their first love. I like to use this analogy. <clears throat> I call it pillow talk. Nadine and I... Over the years, occasionally we have, we call pillow talk. 
We're lying in our beds and our heads are on our pillows. We're looking at each other. Sometimes words are needed. Sometimes they aren't. Tenderness is expressed. Deep things are communicated. Love is shared. I can remember this one time, afternoon. Look, it's daytime. My kids are living at home. All our clothes are on. We're just enjoying a quiet time. Pill talk, right? And our two kids, who are our gifts? My son is a gift to me. My daughter is a gift to me. Our gifts, our children walked in the room. What do you think happened to pillow talk? Pillow talk was over, right? They walked in the room. What do we do? We both sat up in bed. And our gifts, our precious gifts that we love, got our undivided attention. And pillow talk was over. Let me tell you, as precious as the gifts are, pillow talk is more important than the gifts. Intimacy with God, pillow talk with God, that intimate time where he speaks to our heart, we speak to his, where there's tenderness and love shared between the bride and the bridegroom, it's more important than the gifts. And what happens sometimes is that the gifts show up and they draw all the attention away from intimacy. That's how the gifts, that's how ministry becomes a mistress. It takes our focus away from God. I think there's a better way. I think he would have us be madly and passionately in love with him. And that birth out of that passionate love, out of that deep intimacy, would be the fruit of the Spirit and the gifts of the Spirit. The gifts were never intended to be a substitute for intimacy with God. I can remember hearing John Wimber teach many years ago when he was at a low point. He was kind of hitting bottom. He was traveling a lot, he was teaching a lot, and he was in his hotel room on his knees with his Bible open before him on his bed and, and looking desperately looking for something out of the Word. And he said he couldn't remember the last time he cracked open that book just for relationship with God. That every time he was in it is because he was trying to cultivate a new message for a new place he was going. That's when ministry becomes a mistress. That book is a love letter from our Heavenly Father, from our amazing God to us. So what's our Monday morning takeaway? Let's refuse to allow good to become the enemy of best. Let's refuse to settle for good instead of the best. Let's not settle for the gifts alone. Let's not settle for the fruit alone. Let's have both of those, but let's go for love with everything we got. With all that God's put in us, let's passionately go after love. Let love be the motivation behind all we do. Let's be a people who love well. Let's be a people who have the fruit of the Spirit and love. Let's be a people who operate in the gifts of the Spirit and who love extraordinarily well. Let's do that. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Ooh. Um, I, was, I was feeling a few things during worship before I close the prayer. I don't know who it's for, but I'll share the general impression and, and maybe it'll fit you. I feel like there are some people who came here today and you feel like you're a square peg in a round hole. I felt like for some people there was like um, 
Um, it, there was like the friction uh, or the burr. The burr was a sense that I had. I used to work as an aircraft mechanic, and, and burrs, when you would drill a hole, burr would be a real problem sometimes. Fastens wouldn't fit well. It could be a real problem. Sometimes they could be dangerous. They could cut you. I felt like there were some people, there were square pegs trying to fit in the round holes that had burrs on them. And, and I think that the answer is one of two things. Either the hole has to change or the peg has to change, right? And so I think there's change at hand for some of you. If you're the hole and you feel like a square peg is being jammed in you, maybe there's a burr there that you need to be deburred. That edge needs to be softened. It, it just needs to be cut out. And it's really a simple process, and I think God will do that for you. And if, you, if, you're, if you're the peg, well, maybe you need to find the hole that matches you. Instead of trying to have something have, where you're being forced into something that doesn't fit you, that's not God. God doesn't put square pegs in round holes. It was like people were puzzle pieces, and you didn't quite fit. It was close, and it was like you were being pounded into into the puzzle because that's the piece that was needed. And I, and I really felt like God wanted me to communicate a word of freedom to you, that he has a place for you. He has a place where you fit. He has that in your jobs. He has that in your friendships. He has that in your community. In, in every different area of your life, wherever it might fit for you, I feel like God wants to not not allow that condition to continue to go on where a square peg is being squeezed into a round hole. And so if that's you today, and I don't even know what area of life it may apply to, but that was the picture I seen. This is God's word to you today. You're free. You don't have to be squeezed into a round hole. You don't have, if you're the round hole, you don't have to have a square peg shoved into you. That that's not his heart for you. And that's not his way for you. He has freedom for you. And so... I got that out. Lord, I pray for my friends today. Lord, I pray for all of us that we would no longer be square pegs and round holes. That we would be round pegs and round holes. That we would be square pegs and square holes. Lord, I pray that we would live in the fullness of the freedom that is rightly ours in Christ Jesus. Set us free, Lord. Set us completely free. And Father, I pray that we would not be numbered among the people referred to in Matthew 7 or, or 1 Corinthians 13. I pray just the opposite. Lord, would you make of Charlottetown Community Church a, a people who love, a people who love well. Lord, I pray that love would be our highest aim and that everything would be subordinate to love. That our, our thoughts, our opinions, our rightness, our gifts, our spiritual gifts, our talents, our abilities, that everything would be secondary, would be subject to love. Lord, I pray that we would be known as yours, as your followers, by the extraordinary way that we love one another. And Lord, I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen? Amen. I love you guys. Have an awesome day today. And uh, if you're free uh, tomorrow night, the Spiritual Gifts Workshop, Session 6 is going to be on how to give a prophetic word. Uh, we'd love to see you at 7 o'clock, right here.